Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. It is my plan that each uh, time we come to a communion Sunday, which is always a fifth Sunday of a month, and uh, uh, if we have a fifth Sunday, usually there's uh, four of those in the course of a year. This year we have five. Uh, our final one will be uh, just about on the very last day of the year this year. But uh, uh, I'd like to spend each week that we spend on communion uh, sharing with you from Isaiah 53. And this will actually be our third time in this chapter this year already. So join me as I, I start to read to you Isaiah 53. I'm going to just go through right through the chapter here. There's 12 verses. And then we'll have a word of prayer. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and like one with, from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out, uh, cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Gracious Lord, we have an incredible passage in front of us today to look upon, and we realize as we Read your word. It's, it's not just these words that we're thinking of. We're especially thinking of you, our Savior, our Lord, who gave your life for us. We have a remembrance of that today that you have asked us to do, to remember you. Lord, how can we even forget when we consider your great love and your great sacrifice? Thank you for it. I pray, Lord, now you draw our attention to yourself and, and warm our hearts for spending time with you. We pray. Draw our attention there and seal it, Lord, 
when we understand what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, this is our third time into this chapter this year already. It's very fascinating to me as we uh, um, look at this chapter. Well, maybe it's more than fascinating. It's convicting as we read this chapter. Uh, To hear the word our read over and over and over again in this passage, and it's always in reference to sin, that's rather convicting. And as we read through this, uh, I am reminded that this, what Christ has done for us, was motivated by his love for us, but it was caused by our sin. It was caused by our sin. If I was to ask you this morning, uh, if you knew the man James Rowe, R-O-W-E, you might uh, say, I'm not sure. I'll give you some options. There is uh, James Rowe, the cricketer. Lives in England. He plays cricket. Probably don't know him, do you? There is James Rowe Jr., the horse trainer. Well, he passed away many years ago. James Rowe Sr., who was his father, of course. He was a American jockey and a horse trainer. That doesn't ring a bell, does it? James Rowe, the American prisoner of war, passed away about 20-some years ago. Maybe you don't recognize that name. Or there's a politician by the name of James Rowe, too. I don't know where he's serving today, but uh, um, he was born in 1978. That's my list of James Rose. When I go into the uh, uh, Wikipedia, of course, to figure out who is this man, James Rowe. That's all I have. But I do know this. He wrote two hymns in your hymn book. And it wasn't any of these, I'm sure. He wrote one song called, I Would Be Like Jesus. You remember it, don't you? Another song. Love lifted me. You know, we know nothing else about him. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know anything about his person, his family, his background, nothing. But he seems to know an awful lot about us. Simple words he put in here, which any one of us know are true. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, thinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. We could sing that song, couldn't we? And sing it from the same set of words. For we know that that's exactly where we've been too, that the Lord would save us. That's an amazing thing. Folks, and, and when we look through our passage of Scripture today, it even stands even more amazing to me as I consider that Christ would love us and care enough to come and die for us. This uh, communion table that's set before us just seems to get prettier and prettier as you study how deeply we were in sin and how great a love He had for us. That's our little focus here this morning. For the last couple of times we've been together in this chapter, we saw the fact that we are sinful and we deserve God's wrath. 
Scripture shows us that in this chapter. We also find that we are rebellious and we refuse to listen to God's truth. He starts even the chapter with, who's going to believe this? And that's exactly where we've been too. Today I give this uh, uh, time together a bit of a title this way. Christ came into our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. Christ came into our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. He was willing to come. That's a fascinating aspect of what we're going to see. He was willing to come. One person said that this is chapter 53 of Isaiah, the gospel in miniature. And yet when I read it, I think it's the gospel in vivid color. It goes and gives great detail about what Christ was willing to do. That he would come to our world, our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. Now I want to give a little emphasis to that before I bring up the application at the end of our thoughts here today. But there are several verses I want to focus on, and let's look at them together. It won't be the entire chapter, but just pieces out of it. In verse number 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And I trust that's you that will say, I've seen, I know, I believe. The, the writer Isaiah asks, who will? Who will? Verse number two, we will look at again later in, the, in our time this morning. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Then jump down to verse number 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way, each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And one more, verse number 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Those are the verses we're going to, to center our thoughts on here this morning. But as we begin, the, the word's depraved, that's not a word that anyone likes. When we address it, it's like, ooh. That's a, that's a hard word, isn't it? The word depraved. And I told you that's part of what... Uh, uh, I see in this chapter, Christ came to our depraved world. He came to it. Almost anyone here, I'm sure, if I ask you to quote Romans 3.23, you could probably do it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We would prefer that word all not to be there, for we would like to at least try to excuse ourselves from such a statement, but we can't. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And when we read verse number 4, like I mentioned already, that word our stands out so well in this chapter. It's our griefs that are mentioned. It is our sorrows that are mentioned here. Our diseases are referenced in this chapter. In verse number 5, it's our transgressions, uh, our iniquities that are given to us. In verse number 6, it says, uh, it's the iniquity of us all, that's referenced as well. 
in verse number 8 where I just read, it's the transgression of my people. All of these are simply stating in, in a possessive way that this is what belongs to us. Our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions. It's a nasty little list, isn't it? Nasty. The ingredients of sin are threefold. I, I call them the three R's. I think I'm okay with that. I told you last time we were together in this passage. If they can call uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic the three R's, then I could use rebellion and rejection and depravity. It has an R in it, just like arithmetic has one and writing does too. But at least I had two out of the three, and they only had one. All right? In this, the three R's of sin, rejection, rebellion, and depravity. Scripture doesn't uh, hesitate to tell us exactly that. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 6, and I know I've taken you here before, but I think that Genesis 6 is just one verse that states it so clearly. I call verse number 5 the definition of depravity. I'll read it to you just in the English, and then I'll read to you the, the Hebrew equivalent of this as it's translated from the Hebrew text. But in verse 5, the definition of depravity is seen this way. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that's quite a statement when you think it through. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me break down the words a little bit here. Every intent, that's what he meditates on. As we would say, that's the impulse of his thoughts, his tendency. Every intent. Of the thoughts of his heart, the speaking of the word heart is, is what he's inventing inside. His, his designs, even the Hebrews equated the heart with the mind and what you would think. And his inventions, his designs, uh, the root word for that is a work of art. So it's not something casually done, it's something intentionally uh, practiced and perfected. The intent of his heart, heart, the thoughts of his heart. He had worked on it so well, it became a, a work of art for him. But it says in this passage that every impulse of the invention, the designs of his heart, was only evil continually. They added that word there, which is, is alarming, isn't it? I mean, if we say, well, it, it's occasional... We'd give them a little hope. But continually, that's a strong word. Now, this is what the Hebrew tongue actually has this as. Then Jehovah saw the men of the earth were abundantly morally depraved, and the whole impulse of the inventions of his heart were only morally depraved the whole day. That's not pretty, is it? That's the definition of depravity. God's word states it as such. Our sins, our iniquities, our rebellion, our rejection, it's our depravity. That's the nature of man. 
one definition in the theological circle is that sin may be defined ultimately as anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the Creator. That's a lot of words. Let me break it down one bit. Sin may be defined ultimately as anything in the creature which does not express the character of the Creator. Sin is ultimately defined as anything in the creature which does, which is contrary to the character of the Creator. So it doesn't express Him, it's contrary to Him. That is a definition of what we see. There's another way it's been defined in the thesaurus. Depravity is that which is highly offensive in character, in nature, in conduct, corrupt, degenerate, perverted, putrid, rotten, unhealthy, poisoned, and stained. I had a bedroom like that once. We didn't know it. Kay and I had bought this house uh, about ten years ago, and it's not the one I just sold. <laughs> I'm glad I sold this one, too. But uh, this other one, we, we bought the house, and, of course, walking through it, everything looked great. And we had a lot of help, about 30 or so adults, and a whole bunch of children came over to help us move into that house. So uh, they did everything. I think we scared, scared the neighbors to death, because... Somebody had just bought that house, and there were kids hanging out of every window. There were people all over the place, cars everywhere. They, they didn't know what they got. And uh, so they all moved our stuff in. All we had to say is, this is a bedroom, this is a kitchen, you know, and things like that. And, and everything came in, and it was an exhausting day. And, and at the end of the day, the, the bedrooms were made up, ready to go, and, and we were tired. So we just went into the bedroom and went to sleep. About three in the morning, I woke up to this smell. It was an incredible, terrible smell. It matched this definition very well. And uh, I couldn't believe that was in our bedroom. And I got up and I, I went over to where I thought it was. It was right at the corner where, where my end of the bed happened to be. The floor was damp. They had used it as their dog kennel. And it was still wet from it. And it was, it was so much so that we got up. We pulled all the furniture out of the room. We grabbed a hold of one end of the carpet, and we just started yanking it out. Opened the bedroom window and threw it out into the yard. There was a, a beautiful wood floor underneath there that was soaked. It, was, it had the padding already was soaked. The, the wood was even warped up because it had been wet for so long, and the smell got stronger and stronger, we pulled up the wood floor. That went out the window, too. Now, if the neighbors thought we were strange the night before, now they see us pitching things out the window very early in the morning uh, as we were trying to get rid of that terrible, terrible smell. And when I read this list, offensive in character, nature and conduct, corrupt, degenerate, putrid, rotten, unhealthy, poisoned and stained, I say, I know that room. I've seen that before. That's, that's, ooh, that was ugly stuff, but it had to go. When you consider your sin, how offended do you think God gets in the sight of sin? 
He can't even look at it. He, he, he wants nothing to do with it. And as I read through this passage here in Isaiah, and I, I see the nature of man, and, and I see him standing in the presence of a holy God, and I say, what better word for it than this word we just have, depraved? That's, that's an incredible statement, I know, because I'm talking about myself just as much as anyone else. And that's the standing we have before him when we consider how sinful we are. The, the word for depraved, actually, as we start to dig into the text a little bit, is uh, fascinating just to see the scope of it. Travel over to Romans chapter number 1 for a minute with me. Romans chapter number 1. Some very familiar verses here for us. But here, here's one of the literal definitions of a Greek word for, for sin, really, is the word unapproved. Unapproved. Uh, unworthy or worthless might be another way for it. In other words, it has been tested and it was found to fail. Just like that picture in Romans 3.23. Uh, we've missed the mark. All of us have sinned and fallen short. The test was given and we failed. And that same word pops up here in Romans chapter 1. Uh, verse number 28 says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's the New American Standard Version and the NIV if you have it here. A depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Depraved there, if you're reading the King James, you have reprobate. That's not a pretty word either, is it? Uh, if you're reading uh, perhaps from the English Standard Version, you have debased. But it speaks of that which is unapproved and worthless. It doesn't stand the test. And these minds are, are given that characteristic as an adjective. They don't stand the test. They are worthless. Here's a man who refuses to, refuses to acknowledge a holy God. Because, you know, if, if we acknowledge that God is holy, then all of a sudden we're accountable to Him, and we're responsible for what we have done, right? And so the easiest thing to do is just not acknowledge God. And that solves our work problems, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. But somehow we have clouded our minds to think that if we just refuse to believe he's there, then we're not accountable and we're not responsible. People do that. Uh, I know that sometimes I have a habit, if I have a problem to overcome, that if you ignore it long enough, it goes away. It doesn't work in everything, but some things I get away with that. You can't get away with that with sin. And you can't just say, well, if I ignore God long enough, he goes away. Because that's not true either. But that's what some have tried, and that's what verse 28 says. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Well, they. Look at them. Look at their pride. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind. They couldn't stand the test. The result that God gives them over is woven all the way through this uh, passage. starts in verse 18, and it goes all the way to the end of verse 32. But as uh, we see in verse number 24, for example, he gives them over to bodily destruction. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 
Verse 26, he gives them over to mental destruction as well. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then he talks about uh, relationships that are unfit. Women exchange their natural function for that which is unnatural. Same way with the men. And the women burn toward the women. The men burn toward the men. Um, God gave them over to that. And verse number 28, there's uh, added, And just as they did not see fit, to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. The result, all the way down to verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The end result is spiritual destruction. Bodily destruction, mental destruction, spiritual destruction. God gives them over to that because they have a depraved mind. A depraved mind. That story still goes on today, doesn't it? Hasn't stopped. This was written to the Romans way, way back, long time ago. And it's a true statement of mankind. And this is the way that man stands before a holy God. They don't stand the test. Man fails the test of pleasing God. Now, when I speak of depravity, they usually, in theological circles, put the word total in front of it. Total depravity. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Total depravity is, means that we are totally depraved. Not just in our minds, but in our hearts, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our plans, in, our, in everything about us, spiritually and physically and mentally, every aspect of me stands before a holy God and unapproved is a stamp that goes on it. Totally. That's a picture of it. Now, when we use that term, I want you to realize what it doesn't mean. When we say that mankind is totally depraved, it doesn't mean that every person has exhibited his depravity as thoroughly as he or she could. Thank the Lord they haven't. Or that every sinner will indulge in every form of sin. That hasn't happened either. Though it may seem that way. Billy Sunday had a neat little comment about this once. He said, the reason why sin flourishes is that we treat it like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. Total depravity does not mean that depraved people cannot do good things. Boy, they do good things. But we're talking about our standing before a holy God. And that's the picture that Scripture is giving to us here. Not how I stand next to you, or how you stand next to me. Because we can make each other look pretty good, can't we? But standing before a holy God, that's an entirely different picture. Matter of fact, perhaps the easiest way to describe it is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Just one little verse here that stands out so clear. When God says, do you want to know what it looks like to me? Do you want to know what the total depravity is like? You use this little verse. Ephesians 2, 1. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's quite a statement. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Totally dead. Now, you just can't be kind of dead, can you? Now, every now and then, just to tease the kids, 
or, or mention something like I have a touch of rigor mortis today. Just, just a touch, right? No. We can't just be kind of dead and any more than we can be kind of spiritually dead. We were dead. And there's so little. Matter of fact, there is nothing that a dead person can do for themselves. Nothing. Completely incapable of helping themselves. That's sheer helplessness in that picture. And I want you to understand that from a spiritual condition. As human beings, we do a lot to try to help ourselves. We fix up and hide and cover things to make it look good. But you can't do that spiritually speaking. Standing before a holy God, dead is the picture, a condition that you can do absolutely nothing about. You can't fix that up. That's the way it stands before Him. You're aware that uh, uh, the song Amazing Grace is sung often by us in the church. John Newton, the writer of that, uh, speaks to his testimony and said, By nature I was too blind to know Him, too proud to trust Him, too obstinate to serve Him, too base-minded to love Him. Grace is amazing, isn't it? That He should save one like that. That He should save us. Now, it's very important as we talk about this little chapter, Isaiah 53, and as we approach this table here this morning, that we realize that the whole gospel starts with a presentation of who we are. Morally depraved before a holy God. Like I said, it makes what took place at the cross an even prettier picture, doesn't it? When we consider what Christ has done for us, we were morally depraved. Now, that's one aspect I share with you this morning. The other side I told you in the title was that also our world is spiritually barren. Spiritually barren. It cannot produce spiritual things. It doesn't even know them, the Corinthian writer would say, Paul. He says they don't even know spiritual things. Uh, but that's the nature of our, our land as well. Back in Isaiah chapter 8, you scoot back there a few pages with me. We have quite a picture here of Israel in their ignorance, in their stupidity, in their uh, wandering away from the Lord and trying to do things their own way. The Lord gave us a snapshot of what to look at when you see them. Now, here's the reality. He has sent His Word to them. He has sent His leaders to them, men like Moses and Samuel and Joshua and others in the Old Testament. They've had their King David. They have had their uh, opportunities to know what is right, to do what is right, and yet they constantly turned away from the Lord. To the point where they started to... Uh, Inquire of idols for help, for information, for direction in life. And the Lord, as you know, is totally against idolatry. It's just about number one on his list of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, Israel practiced that constantly. They'd go after these other gods. And at one point, they were starting to, to feel the pressure of, we don't know what we're doing anymore. Ah, really? We feel like we've lost our direction. 
We don't see that things are working right in our economy. We see things falling apart around us. We have enemies knocking on our doors. We're losing our crops and our homes. And, and all of a sudden they're saying, we need some advice from somebody. And so they come to the Lord for advice. And his way of dealing with it is says, why don't you go and ask your idols? You think they're so great and they can help you? Why don't you go talk to them? At first they said, no, 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 we're going to go to the law. We're going to the testimony. We're going to find out what it said. And as they read it, they don't understand it. They can't grasp it. And here in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19, starts to give you the snapshot. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law, to the testimony. But they don't speak according to this word. Why? End of verse 20. It is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, hard-pressed and famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. That's a frightening little picture. Everything is going downhill fast, and the faster it goes, the angrier they get. And the angrier they get, the more they raise their fist right up to the heavens and blame God for it all, when they've turned away from Him altogether. And then it says in verse number 22, they looked. This is what they see. They will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. That's a picture, folks, of what it looks like after a terrible war. What do they see? They don't see houses. They don't see crops. They don't see food. The homes are gone. The crops are gone. The food is gone. The money is gone. The joy is gone. The hope is gone. It's all gone. It's a barren land. A barren land parched, completely dry. It's a land of drought. It's a land of desert. It's a land that's been diseased. Same word. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. I think we have a little bit of a picture of that if we look outside this afternoon. It's been rather dry lately, hasn't it been? Everything's starting to become the same color out there. And as we look across the landscape, we say, yeah, I understand dry, I understand drought, I understand this. Now, Isaiah says something which I, I think is rather humorous in verse number 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? This is living? Think about that. They say, that's living? They're in a parched ground. There's nothing positive in the picture at all. Except one thing. In verse 2, there's a little green shoot coming up out in the middle of all that. It says there, a tender shoot. Who is that? In the picture, it's the picture of our Lord, isn't it? In the midst of all the distress and the disease and the, the desert and the dryness, we see one living thing, one living thing coming up. 
in the midst of all that. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. You've got a dry, empty, wasted field and one tender green sprout. There's hope for you. There's hope. And what's he springing up from? That empty, wasted, dry, filthy field. Now think again with me as I started this uh, uh, study here this morning. Christ was willing to come to our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. Most of us, if we got a pure, good, clear glimpse of what this world looked like, we would have said, I'm going someplace else. Why would I go to that place? But that's exactly what our Savior did. He came to the very place that we needed Him to come. What we call it condescension. What that is, is that He was willing to descend from His level of rank and dignity to do something far below Him. He stooped to help us up. He stooped to our level. What's amazing to me is that He didn't call us up to His level. Nor did He say, Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you halfway. You work on your end a little bit, and I'll come down some on my end, and I'll meet you halfway. He didn't do that at all. Matter of fact, that wouldn't have done us any good. None whatsoever. Do you remember the story in, in Matthew 14, perhaps, where Peter is uh, in the boat, and they see Jesus walking on the water? Remember Peter's wonderful, incredible insight and thought at that moment? I'd like to go out there and meet him on the water. Lord, let me come out of this boat and walk to you. That would not have been my thought. That was Peter's thought. And Peter says, let me come out and walk out on this water to you. And in here in Matthew chapter 14, you know how it happened. As he was coming out and walking on the water, verse 30 says he sees the wind, he became frightened, he began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus said, Peter, just stand up straighter. No. Just reach for my, just reach out, grab me. No. Peter, I'll meet you halfway. I'll just come part of the way to you, but you come the other half. No. When he said, Lord, save me, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. I just love that picture, don't you? He didn't say, Peter, just straighten up. He reached to Peter's level where Peter was. He didn't offer him anything else but his hand, and he took him up. <laughs> this, this, this is just simply that Jesus came down to this earth, this, this morally depraved, spiritually barren spot, and he saw us there, and he didn't come halfway and say, all right, now you guys clean up a little bit, and I'll come in and finish this. You straighten up a little bit, and I'll finish this. You, you, uh, you work on that behavior a little bit, because I don't want to stand next to you. He didn't say, clean up the field. 
He didn't say, wash your clothes. He didn't say, go take a bath. He didn't say, comb your hair. He didn't say, go to church on Sunday. He didn't say, join the choir. He didn't, oh, that's a good idea. Join the choir. All right. He, he didn't say, memorize a prayer. He didn't say, do anything. He says, I'm coming to you. And he came down to this earth to be among us. Isn't that incredible that he should love us so? And he would come to our level. I like that about what he's done. That little shoot in the midst of a dry field. Thank the Lord for that. That he would come to our dry fields. To our morally depraved condition. He came. He came. Got a couple of quotes just for you to think about. Just simply how he came down to get me out of this. D.L. Moody said these things. Looking at the wound of sin will never save anyone. What you must do is look to the remedy. And again, he says, the voice of sin may be loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. I'm so glad of that. As we have uh, looked at this, and we're about to partake of this table here together, this is a reminder of what Christ did for us. And boy, did we need that. That he should come and die on our behalf. And perhaps as we've been looking at these, uh, you can't help but maybe the Spirit is at work in your heart and you realize, you know, that's me. You know, the catalog of sin is easy to start listing and, and in your own heart you know it better than anyone else. So maybe you're standing there before a holy God and the Holy Spirit's talking to you. He says, yeah, that's you. That's you. The, the sin is revealed in your heart. You feel unworthy in the presence of the Lord. You say, how do I ever, ever make this right? You can't. Only Christ can. And that's the beauty of grace and the wonder of forgiveness. He's the one who cleans us up. He's the one who forgives us. He's the one who saves us. For He's the one who came. If you need forgiveness, and all of us do, Remember so clearly what Jesus said, and it's recorded in the words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is that true? What sins? All sins. There isn't one on the list that is not covered by the blood of Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to remind you of that today, because there might be some among us today who don't even know Christ as Savior. And this is a time when we want you to think in your heart again, where do you stand with Him? We're about to remember Him, and the fact that His body was broken for us, His blood was shed for us. And maybe you don't even know Christ as Savior, but He came for you. He loved you and died for you. This is a reminder of that. And even right now where you're sitting, you could just turn your heart to Him right now and say, Lord, I need you as my Savior. Save me. He will do it. He promises. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise from God Himself. You could call on Him right now. And maybe you are saved. But maybe if you look over your track record, maybe even in the last week you would say, Lord, it's not a pretty thing. Not a pretty thing. I, I've, I've harbored things in my heart. I've done things I know I shouldn't have done. I thought things I... Do you know what? The Lord is so gracious. His forgiveness is offered. 
It's ready to be grasped, to be applied, to be appreciated, to be known. Even now, those words are still true. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Only He can do that, folks. And that's the one I call you to turn to. Even now. Whatever it is that might have just been piling up in your heart, take it to Him. That's what He's done this for. That's why He came. Take it to Him. Lay it before His throne. It's been paid for. Talk to the one who did that for you. As we go into prayer and in as soon as we're done, Isaac's going to come up and lead us in this communion reminder. Let's just go talk to our Lord, our Savior, at this time together. Precious Lord, you know us so well. There's nothing hidden from your sight. We know that's true. Now, as we sit before you here this morning, Lord, we're so thankful for the message of the gospel. It's not a comfortable thing for us to view our own sin and know how great it is how offensive it is, even, in your sight. And yet, Lord, when we consider our Savior, we thank you, Lord, for that kind of love and that kind of grace and that kind of mercy that you would extend it to us because you love us so. And, Lord, since you know everyone in this room, we, we stand before your throne, and I pray that you deal with us individually, too. If there are sins that are being harbored in the lives of any of us today, Lord, right now may we cast them before your throne, knowing that they're paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And may we claim the forgiveness of those sins and walk in that newness of life that you have given to us. I pray that you'll change us even now from those habits and practices. And yet, Lord, also as well, if there's some who have never claimed Christ as Savior, maybe even now, They realize how desperately they need Him. And they're appealing to you right now. Do what you have promised to do, Lord, and save them. Make them your child. Remove them from the domain of darkness and set them in the kingdom of light. We praise you, Lord, for what you have done. Your willingness to come. That you should love us so. We thank you, Lord, for that. And we praise you. And as we partake of our communion service, we remember... In Jesus' name, amen.